Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about paying attention, the art of observation, with my guest, Christian Mesbier. He is the co-founder of the consulting firm Red Associates. He writes, speaks, and teaches widely on the practical application of the human sciences. Christian's work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Financial Times, Washington Post, Bloomsburg Business Week, and he lives in New York City with his family, and he is the author of Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. Welcome, Christian. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Lisa. Well, this is a great pleasure because I spend a lot of time in my work in listening mode, and I do teach others how to listen deeply. And your work focuses on learning how to pay deeper attention. And I would love for you to talk about what you mean by attention and its impact on connection. Right. Yeah, so th- that's a big topic, and it's basically taken me my entire work life to figure this out. And I'm a natural observer, I'd say. It's my profession, and it's uh, also what I sort of like to do and do naturally, which is try to understand what other people are doing and why they're doing it. Based on, based on what are we moving around in the world the way we are, um, and how do we make our decisions? Not necessarily our rational decisions, but just any everyday decision. Um, so that's been my that's been my career, and I have done this for big government organizations or big philanthropies or big companies to try to get these increasingly abstracted organizations to pay attention to normal life and normal everyday people and feel a level of empathy maybe with with the people that they serve. Um, and not long ago, maybe five, six years ago, I got a call from uh, the provost of the new school in Manhattan, um, who uh, who said, I, "You know, we've been following you, and what you're doing seems to work. Can it be taught? Like, can you teach observation? Can you teach paying attention well?" So the book I wrote that I'm 
proud of and is quite personal to me is that course that I taught. It's basically what I took the students through and seeing them connecting closer to the world through techniques of observation was a delight and it was wonderful to see. And I just wanted to share the techniques and the message more broadly. So let me see if I get this straight. What I think you're suggesting is that when we come to a place of contemplation in observation, right, where we're really focused on what is around us, it connects us more deeply to those people with whom we're with and allows us to almost activate a part of um, intuition within ourselves in addition to compassion and empathy? You can say that, yeah. For me, it's analytical. So you could say, if we sort of step back a little bit, say that there are many types of attention. And human attention is a magical, beautiful thing. But let's say there are two, just to simplify. One we could say is like a spotlight, works like a spotlight. So you beam in on a particular topic. So when we tell our children, pay attention, then what we really mean <laughs> is listen to me. Yeah. And that is a more like a beam of light. Now, that is one kind of attention. And we often talk about it like I can't pay attention. It means I can't focus. Um, but there is a much broader type of attention that I'm interested in, which you could call it's more like a floodlight. It's more like ambient light in a room. And it is the background the practices we have in our daily lives that makes it possible to move through the world. And my, my kind of attention is how do you pay attention to that? Now, an example could be I, I live on 13th Street in Manhattan. And I, when, I, when you walk down 13th Street, you will see, you will walk without paying much attention in the, in the spotlight kind of way. You don't zoom in on every single aspect of walking down the street. You have much more of a panoptic, broad attention to what's happening. And what you see is, of course, delivery truck, car, uh, school kids, you know, uh, cars going back and forth and so on. All those things you don't zoom in on. You don't have a beam of focused attention on them, but you pay attention to all of it and nothing at the same time. And that's because we humans know how to move through something like 13th Street. We know what a school is. We know how it, there is a school on 13th Street. We know how, what a school is. We know how it behaves. We know that um, electric scooters can be dangerous because they go in all directions. We know what, what the rhythm of the city is at the, at the moment we're walking through it. So that kind of attention, which is more of a background floodlight kind of attention, is what I pay attention to. And that's, what, that's the exact kind of attention that um, we don't think about. It's like water to the fish in a way. But there's so much baked into this ability of moving through our lives, moving through cities and so on, that, um, that, it, that uh, is um, based on that or embedded in that. And you can pay attention to that analytically. You can study and observe how people do that. And by doing that, you can understand based on what are these people doing, what they're doing. And by doing that, you can get much more empathetic and deeper understanding what their life might be like and how it's the same and different from yours. 
So when you talk about attention impacting connection, using the process that you've just described, how does that connect us more closely to people or to one another? Right. So let me give you an example um, I, from one of my students, one of my brilliant students. Um, so right now, this morning, I read in the news that um, there's a lot of discussion about homelessness in America. And on one side, they say, this is horrible. We need more police. And on the other side, they say, this is uh, horrible. We need less police. And um, th those questions strike me as quite easy answers compared to what my student did, which was observe homelessness. Like, what is it really like to not know um, where to sleep tonight? And he went out for a couple of nights and just basically walked the streets of New York uh, to try to figure out what's, what's important about the situation they're in. What's it like? And he, find, he found three things. I'll do it very quickly. But he found three things that really surprised him. One was light. The other one was smell. And the third one was sound. Uh, that surprised him in terms of how different their lives are. People that live in that are so unfortunate to be without um, shelter. The, and light would be, you, th you would think at night that people sleep, when, when people sleep on the streets at night, that it's dark. It's not. It's bright light on them. And that's a good thing because light means safety for them. Sound was, was a different one. You think like at night we need to sleep well and we need to make sure there's no music and there's no sound around us. But the sound in the streets where people sleep at night are just deafening. There are delivery trucks and garbage, garbage trucks and road work and all kinds of things happening at the same time. And the third one that was important to him was the smell. So if you've ever smelled something dead, if you smelled a dead animal or even a dead human, it has a very particular smell. It smells a little bit like tooth decay. And once you start following and like trying to observe what it might be like to be, what it might be like to, to live in the streets, that smell is everywhere. So imagine extreme light, which is protection, extreme sound, and then this constant smell of what really is the smell of death. And by doing that for a while, he got a little way more nuanced relationship to what it might be like to be, um, to be homeless. And I think the people that are shouting uh, in the newspapers and online about what, homeless, what we should do about homelessness and what it is and so on, if they together went out and tried to observe what it really is like to live that kind of life for a little while, what it, uh, you know, try to empathize with it and try to observe it carefully and, in, and with great intention, they would have a much better conversation with each other about what we do about this big problem. Um, so it's not only that you that by observation you relate to the world in a more nuanced, textured way. It's also if we do it together, we can heal some of our differences. And I think that's right now shattering our conversations. So for me, observation is the tonic. It's the it's the vaccine against all the screaming and all the misunderstanding and all the conflict and our shattered conversation about what we do with it with ourselves. This makes sense as you describe it. So it's almost like a, a macro observance, right? So we're pulling back the lens and being able to 
observe the totality of what's around us in in the moment. Exactly. Exactly. I call it hyper-reflection in the book, but macro-reflection would be another, or macro-observation would be maybe even a better way of saying it. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's a second-order type of observation that you need to practice, just like you need to go to the gym or something. Like it's, it's a muscle that you, can, that you can practice. And in the book, I try to present the people in art and music and, uh, and literature and so on that are the best at it, that I've found that are the absolute masters at this kind of macro reflection. And we can all do it. We just need to we just need to practice it well and be intentional about it. We're going to take a micro break, but before we go, I would love for you to give a couple examples of um, artists of, of of any kind that do that practice this art of observation well. Yes. So the one of the I mean my favorite example is um, uh, the English. Uh, writer J.A. Baker, who wrote the, my favorite book in the world that I read every time I feel down or confused. And it's called The Peregrine. And it's from the 1950s in England. And it's basically a man watching peregrine falcons, but not watching them just as the birds themselves, but their entire world, like how they relate to the rest of the animals and the place that they're in. And um, by doing that, he becomes part of the lives of these animals. Um, and he describes in a way where you can say, this guy is not just watching like um, a scientist would watch and sort of write down how fast and how much and how many kills does it have and so on. He becomes part of the world of the animal, of the bird. And in that way, he. Um, he shows us the deepest way you can be observing the world, which is complete immersion in the world, complete uh, commitment to trying to understand. And his, his world is, of course, extreme. He's, he's maybe the best there is or there has ever been. But, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a benchmark that we can all strive for in terms of immersing ourselves in the world of others and it doesn't have to be humans. I, I like I tend to ha- like humans because I think we're very interesting creatures. But it could be any, anything, really. <laughs> Me too. I like humans too. Let's take that mm. pause to learn more about <laughs> Christian Mespierre and his work and his newest book, Look How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. Please go to his website and let me spell it for you. It's mespierre.com, and that's M-A-D-S-B-J. ERG.com. Again, M A D S B J E R G.com. And that's where you'll find him. We'll be right back. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for nutritious helpings of positive goodness. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. 
to learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and at the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com to explore experiential online and on-site optimal lifestyle management consulting services, including recovery fortification and life crisis triage. And we're back. Let's continue the conversation with Christian Mesbier. We're talking about paying attention, the art of observation. Let's return to that conversation. Christian, let's talk about how and why we have lost our observation skills and how we can learn to regain them or the practice of regaining them. Yes. So it's a skill we have as humans. I think we're born with it. um, And I think we can all be better at it. So the thing, just like we can all run, or we can all um, uh, walk, we can also pay attention. And we have an ability, I think, in us that is realizing that we're completely in the midst of others. We're not a brain in a vat. We're not looking at the world through a window. We're in the middle of it. And this skill of attention is to acknowledge that and say, so how does that work? Um, how does um, how is it that we are organized as human beings? So the way I I think about it is that if you the more you get away from carefully um, an, in an organized way observing phenomena human phenomena in the world, the more you get away from it, the more abstract your world becomes, the more cold it becomes, and the less texture texture. It has. And if you look at some of the people I've worked with, so, you know, if you look at big executives in enormous companies, they don't spend time with the people that they serve. So if you are an auto executive, if you, if you make vehicles, you haven't spent time with the people that actually drive those vehicles in a long, long time. You live in, an, in, a, in a nice office and you have people helping you and everything is numbers. But so, so then you end up having a very abstract relationship to other people. And we drift away from this embedded, textured relationship to each other. Um, I would say online tools um, in the past 20 years, or particularly the past 15 years, have also driven us away from uh, a life in the midst of other people to a life lived through screaming through screens. And that is not just bad. There's a lot of good things about that but it also leads to a more abstract relationship to each other. And to me, between humans, abstraction is always the enemy. It's always the thing that makes us um, mean to each other, that that, that, that deteriorates our relationships. So the opposite of abstraction is being embedded, being immersed. Um, And that might be something we should turn our attention to a little more. Um, at least that's what I'm trying to argue, is that it's good for all of us. It's good for our conversations, for our families, for our relationships, but also for our work. In order to not fight with each other at work, uh, and in order to make better things for people, and in order to get rid of things that aren't, aren't helpful, we need to be embedded with the people that use them. <laughs> and um, And it's as if we have withdrawn from that messiness of trying to understand how is it that we find our way around in the world. Um, And those techniques are basically techniques of observation. So I I think observation can be 
the way to bring back color and texture and empathy to our work life and and home life and friendships and so on. Um, Yeah. What I'm hearing from what you're saying is that the argument for observation is that it also breeds a a kind of intimacy that um, is 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 warmth is is the connectivity that you're that you're talking about that we all strive for with one another. Yes, and that helps us understand how that other people's lives make sense. And we might not understand it, but if we carefully observe it, we will. Um, so our differences um, will be ironed out um, by if, if, if you practice this kind of um, um, observation. So for, you know, if you go back to the auto, automotive exec, executive, an automotive executive will have, uh, make a lot of money. And will have the cars that he or she wants. Um, but if, if you know, I've had auto execs out working, you know, be spending days with people that doesn't have much money and that own an old car, but it's their car. So if you know they made it, um, it's just not the fancy version. And when you do that, these auto execs, for instance that are smart and generous and wonderful people, they suddenly connect to a life that's not theirs and they can suddenly see ways of serving people better. So it's, it's also just, it's not a matter of efficiency. It's a matter of being better at what you do. Um, and I think the more we do that, the better things we make and the less junk we make. Yeah. And the better professional partner parent we become. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so you could think of it analytic. It's it's an analytical tool. It's not just feeling it. It's also carefully observing the structures of how you walk down Thirteenth Street or what it's like to own an old car. Um, it, it, it's it's analytical, but it's not cold. It's a way of trying to deeply understand why people do what they do. And let's touch for a moment going back to um, screens, you know, uh, the layers that, uh, that occur between us in the digital world and the argument for stepping away from technology to revitalize the senses. Yeah. Yes. I was, I was in an art museum the other day, and I've always been interested in, you know, at an art museum, I'm not looking, I'm, because I'm like that, I'm not looking at the art, I'm looking at the other people looking at art. And it's, it's always um, um, interesting to me how people's bodies try to get in, in the right position to look at art. And because art is so confusing, the, the body has a hard time doing it nobody is reflecting on it. They're just trying to get in the right position to look at the art. But it just struck me when I was at this museum the other day that what used to be that the human body is looking at art um, was trying to look at the art. Now the bodies are not trying to get in the position to look at the art. They're trying to get into a position where they can take pictures of themselves and each other with the art. So the actual physical movement in in an art museum has changed based on the screens we have in our hands. 
So we're no longer actually <laughs> looking at the art. We, and, and our bodies have readjusted to something completely different, which is taking pictures of it. And these are, of course, pictures that no one will ever, ever look at. Like no one would be interested in these pictures after they've been taken. So it's got just an example of what these technologies do to us, that we basically stopped looking at art um, and uh, are doing this other thing instead. And that's maybe a metaphor for how deep um, these technologies impact our lives. And I think there's a lot of good things about it. We can, for instance, right now talk to each other because of those technologies, and that's wonderful. Um, but we should be really careful that it doesn't suck the entirety of our relationship to each other and art and politics and our conversation about what we do, about the problems we have. Um, so, so it is a discipline in the sense that, um, you know, learning how to observe or being better at how to observe is a little bit like going to the gym. It's something you have to do. You have to do it routinely and you have to feel kind of awful if you don't. I'm sure you know the feeling that if you haven't been to the gym or you haven't been running or haven't oh. been to yoga, it oh, feels bad. Absolutely. <laughs> That's how it should feel if you haven't carefully yeah. observed what's going on around you. Um, so it has the same sort of routine quality that um, uh, uh, going to the gym has. And if you spend all your time on screens and if you fight with others that are also on screens, you have no direct relationship to the world. And you have no direct observation of the world. And then you live an abstract life. And to me, that's pretty miserable. I agree. And the practice of observation increases, you know, both emotional and social intelligence. It allows us to put away or moderate the desire for immediate gratification, which is another, another issue that contemporary humans face, right? Wanting what we want immediately. Mm. Um, that is also what comes to mind that when we're in that state of observation, we are also tasked to suspend judgment. Yes. Suspending judgment is key. Thank you for saying that. Because yeah. you, the more time you spend online, the more judgmental you become. And the easier it is to just judge the situation immediately without waiting for a second, suspending it for a second, and just look. Just look and listen for a change. And, and make up <laughs> your mind after, judge after you have looked and listened. And I found in my students that when they started the class, they had so many opinions and so easily found um, the judgment that they had already prepared and already knew to be the right guide for how to think about something. And after the course, and after they started um, using the techniques of observation better, they were not so sure about everything. And I think we right now we're educating our children into having opinions rather than observing and listening and then having opinions. And it's not good. And it doesn't make them happy. It makes them miserable and full of rage. And um, you can see that online, of course. Um, and it me means that their friendships aren't as deep um, and their love life isn't as, as intense and as intimate. It just means that we, through judgment, lead simpler lives than we could. 
And simple is not um, always good. Sometimes you want deep texture and color and um, and range of emotion. And I, I think judgment is toxic to um, to um, a, rela- a direct relationship to the world. And I think observation is lethal to judgment. It's lethal to prejudice. It just undermines it. Because yeah. when you look at the world directly, you see that your, your preconceived notions and presuppositions probably aren't wrong, aren't right, and you need to adjust them. And that's a beautiful thing when it happens. It is a beautiful thing, and it builds the case for exercising greater curiosity about the world in which we live, what is around us. In that state of curiosity, judgment is suspended, right? Because we're asking questions, even if it's in our mind, like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. Yes. And you, and you get to see humans as amazing creatures. Like if, every day I, I study humans for a living. So every day I just think, how do we do that? <laughs> how, did that how did that happen? <laughs> Uh, you know, and something that feels every day becomes um, magical and um, full of life. You know, walking down 13th Street becomes um, a, a, a picture of how complex our societies are and how amazing humans are at moving through space in ways that machines can't and um, with such grace so i i think um i think the 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 spectacle of the everyday when you walk down 13th street say is 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 wonderful and fun to watch so i think your world becomes a little more colorful if you get off the screen and start looking at uh what's going on i think you'll learn more and you'll be better at work and you'll be you know better friend Christian Mespier, thanks for joining me today and inviting us to observe the world in a more uh, multidimensional and textured way. We're talking about, look, how to pay attention in a distracted world. To connect with my guest and author, Christian Mespier, please go to mespier.com. And I'd like to spell that for you once again. It's M-A-D-S-B-J-E-R-G.com. Again, M-A-D-S-B-J-E-R-G. Christian, thanks so much for sharing part of your day with me. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Christian Mesbier, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, 
Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.